Hello, and welcome to the very first episode of Planting Seeds of Change, a podcast which has been produced in collaboration with the Food Security and Sustainability Society here at the University of Edinburgh. My name is Hannah Clark, and I am the host, so you will be hearing my voice throughout this and upcoming episodes. I am a sustainable development student and generally concerned citizen about the future of our planet. I have worked alongside some wonderful people in order to produce this series, with an extra special thank you going to Rosalind Craddock and Hannah Udall for their support. We are really excited to start sharing the fascinating conversations we have had with some incredible individuals over the past few months about our food system and its future. This episode is a conversation with Indigenous scholar Enrique Salmon on the topic of decolonizing agriculture. I'll let him explain what that means and why you should care, but I will just say that I learned so much from speaking to him, and I cannot wait for everyone else to hear his insights and beautifully told stories as well. Enjoy, and thank you for listening. So I'd just like to start by inviting you to introduce yourself in whatever way you would like to. My name is Enrique Salmon. Um, I am Ramuri, that that is my indigenous nation. Um, I am a professor of American Indian Studies here at California State University, East Bay, which is located near San Francisco in the Bay Area here in California. Um, I teach a variety of of different subjects in American Indian Studies, but my own personal research focus has been on ethnoecology, ethnobotany, I've written about that, agroecology, you know, I've written a a book about that as well. And those are the subjects that I really, you know, I tend to to teach a lot, for example, but I do also teach the other courses, but for some reason the students really like the stuff that I focus on for obvious reasons, because maybe that's the best thing that I do. (laughs) Anyway, that's who I am. Perfect, thank you. Um, And so for this podcast, we have been starting each one with a short story or a case study that introduces the theme of each episode. Um, Do you have anything you would like to share today? Short story. Um, Yeah, we're talking about, um, from what I understand, uh, decolonizing agriculture and then also settler colonialism. And... You know, I'm I'm thinking, for example, of a couple of of I guess uh, stories or examples of this for right here in the Bay Area. For one, we have in the past, before Europeans showed up, one of the most heavily populated regions in North America. In fact, I, from what I understand. Of all the native peoples that lived here in North America before Europeans showed up, a third of them lived here along the West Coast, from what today is California up to Washington State. And so this, because for obvious reasons, this this area is a a paradise. You know, you can grow anything here year-round. You can eat and hunt fish year-round. And so as a result, um, California natives, relied on this incredible landscape for who knows how many hundreds of years. And the landscape obviously has been transformed because of, of population increases as a result of Europeans showing up. And native peoples here in the, in the Bay Area in particular have been denied access to their traditional foods like acorns, for example. and. But there's been this revitalization of an interest in decolonizing indigenous diets. And so a few years ago, there were some local Chochenyo Ohlone people who are native here to the Bay Area, and they opened a restaurant called the Ohlone Cafe. And all they offer in their menu are traditional pre-Columbian Ohlone foods. And in order to get those those ingredients, they have to go out onto the land. And they've developed um, relationships with local landowners and state-run park plants, herbs, and so on that they are using in their their restaurant. And to me, I I think about this as a great example of a local community whose population 
a lot of people thought was gone and here in California, but they have fiercely reestablished themselves and rejecting the, I guess you would say the settler colonial institutionalized, or I guess denial of their access to their own identity through their foods. Yeah, yeah, I love that so much. That's such a wonderful example to share. Um, yeah, so I guess that goes quite nicely into the next question, which is that um, I just asked you to introduce the concepts of indigenous indigenous communities and settler colonialism and in general. How do we see the power dynamics between indigenous peoples and settlers playing out today? Well, you know, first I want to make sure that your listeners understand when, when I'm talking about Native peoples, I'll use a couple of words interchangeably. Mm -hmm. I'll talk about Native peoples, I'll use the word Indigenous, I might even use the word Indian, although we kind of tend to use that among ourselves. <laughs> and then uh, and other people, outsiders, you know, use the word as a pejorative sometimes. Yeah. Um, then also the other thing is to, for your listeners to understand that before Europeans came here to the Americas, there were um, over 2,000 different languages spoken here. And for each one of those languages, there is a separate culture, a separate way of, of interacting with the, you know, the ecosystems of different worldview. And even here in North America, there were, you know, five to 800, you know, no one knows for sure, maybe around 800 different languages spoken here in, in, in what today is Canada, United States, and, and Mexico. Um, and again, each one of them representing a different lifestyle, different culture. And that I say that because I've, I've met a lot of people from Europe and they come here with this Hollywood image in their minds of who the Indians are. Yeah. And the Hollywood image, of course, is like the you know the stoic Indian on his his war pony, you know living in a teepee and, and hunting buffalo, mm -hmm. and that was just a small minority of native peoples here before Europeans showed up. Those Plains Indians, most of us traditionally, you know, did not ride um, ride horses and live in teepees and hunt buffalo mm -hmm. and so on. And so I just want your your listeners to understand that. And so anyway, to, to, to answer your question, um, you know, here in, in the Americas, you know, just a quick little history, of course, you know, the, um, the Spanish come here in, in the, the early 1500s, the English come over here as well, and then the French, and then a handful of other European nation states, you know, the Portuguese and the Dutch and so on. And they come here and to conquer, to invade, and eventually start to dominate the land. And then also, of course, dominating um, the indigenous populations. And at first, it was this, this economic exploitation that was going on. But then the Puritans in the early 1600 come over here and decided that this land offered them some religious freedom. So they came to stay. Um, similarly, the Spanish decided that the souls of my ancestors um, required saving, and so they sent over missionaries. And then, of course, the, that was followed quickly by colonists who, you know, came and established colonies in what today is Mexico, and moved as far north as as New Mexico and what today is is the southwestern part of the United States. Meanwhile, the French, they, they came over here, they established some fur trading posts in you know, a few communities, but no, nothing like what we see with the Spanish and, and the English. Um, and those, at this point, those would be examples of your classical colonialism, you know, coming to rule the land, mostly for you know, economic purposes, but then over time, something began to change. So an analogy I like to use with my students is imagine you invite some strangers into your home 
you know, you're trying to be altruistic, you're trying to be friendly and help people in need. But then those people stay and they never leave. You start to drink the beer in your refrigerator and eat all your food in your cupboards. And then they get, they start to get violent. And then they start to, they, they get to the point where they force you to live in a little closet in the corner, the farthest, darkest, coldest corner of your home. And then they never leave. Meanwhile, you're still there. And at the same time, these people are starting to change the way your home looks. They're moving the pictures. They're changing the furniture. We've even gotten to the point where they are telling other people in your neighborhood, oh, we've always lived here. This is our place. We don't have any idea who those, you know, those people that were here before that you're talking about. They, they never were here. If they were here, they, they weren't here for any good purpose. We've made the place better. This is settler colonialism. And where, you know, the, the colonists not only exploit the lands and in some cases commit genocide and so on, you know, of the indigenous populations, they change the narrative of their colonialism. They even begin to appropriate indigenous customs as their own. They appropriate, you know, the way the people dress, the language, the names of football teams and so on as, as, as their own. And we see this perpetuated today, as I mentioned earlier, you know, for example, I was talking to uh, a high school girl yesterday and you know, from a nearby high school who's doing a research project about the images of native peoples in Hollywood. And it's one of the courses that I teach. And I was telling her about Hollywood has so distorted the image and the narrative of indigenous peoples that many indigenous peoples who have lost access to their own languages, to their own cultures, and their own past, their history, have adopted the image, the Hollywood image of what it means to be a native person. Um, a personal example of this is how it's not just here in, in the United States or in North America. It's, you know, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of People from outside the United States have this image of the Indian that has been perpetuated by Hollywood. And so my son and I, who my son, of course, is in his 30s now, but he was only a nine or 10 year old little impertinent boy at the time. We're at a national monument in New Mexico called Bandelier. It's an incredible place. If anyone comes over here to visit, any one of your listeners, make sure you go to Bandelier National Monument in New Mexico. And we were there visiting, and we were talking to a Native woman who had set up a, a stand outside the visitor center. She was selling silver and turquoise jewelry. She was from one of the nearby pueblos. And we're talking to her, and we're telling her about our culture and so on. And this woman from Romania, it you know, turns out, she, she comes over and listens to us for a minute, but then she finally asks, where can I find the Indians? And you know, I try to explain to her, well, you know, we're, we're native peoples. You know, I try to explain to her, you know, my, my tribe, my, my son and my, myself's tribe, and then the tribe of the woman selling the jewelry. And she said, no, I want the real Indians. I want to visit the real Indians. And my son, my little impertinent 10-year-old son said, lady, we are the real Indians. <laughs> <laughs> and it turns out what she was wanting to find was the Hollywood Indian. She wanted to see Indians with the beadwork and the feathers and the buckskin and the stepping outside of their teepee to jump onto their, their war pony. And that's where settler colonialism has, has developed. Um, this strange cultural and power dynamic between native peoples and non-native peoples where they have, non-native peoples have no clue who we really are. And it's to the point where this power dynamic between native communities and the state is loaded toward the colonial states because 
the for last couple of hundred years, they've established institutions that have effectively transformed indigenous peoples into wards of the state. In other words, we are like the children of the government, mm -hmm. even though we were here first. We've become their children. They can do whatever they want with us. They can perpetuate any story about us and encourage the media, like Hollywood, for example, to keep to continue to perpetuate the story to the point where everyone believes these stories. And that's just a long answer to your question about this, you know, the settler colonialism and and um, its impact on native communities. Yeah, no, that was a, a brilliant illustration of that. Um, thank you. Yeah, I think that again takes us forward. And I, I just wanted to ask you next about um, what are some of the issues that you see with um, the Western scientific tradition, particularly that go uncriticized, uncriticized? Um, and why do we see some forms of knowledge production as more valid than others? And, and taking that forward to um, the environment, how does that impact our environmental practices? Um, do you have anything to say to that? Well, yeah, think about this. So Western biologists, for example, you were talking about land, and, and I know you're curious about agriculture as well. Mm -hmm. Western biologists have only been studying in a systematic and serious way the natural systems in North America for maybe a little over 200 years. Mm -hmm. And if we take the most conservative estimations of how long indigenous peoples have been here in the Americas, that would be 20,000 years. But if there's a lot of people like myself who, because of, of um, the diffusion of, of languages, which is quite extensive, that tells us that native peoples have been here for much longer, you know, maybe somewhere most closer to 40 or 60,000 years. But even if we took those, that conservative estimation of 20,000 years, that means that native peoples have been understanding, have been observing and interacting with natural systems here in the Americas for at least 20,000 years. So compare 20,000 years of, of a native science, a native way of understanding and explaining natural systems as opposed to 200 years. Whose, estimate, whose understanding of natural systems are we more likely to, to lean towards <laughs> as, as, you know, as recognizing how these, these systems interact and work over time? And, and so, it's this, there's this arrogance among Western scientists that they have all the answers and how to explain things. You know, Native peoples, we, for those 20 to 40,000 years, we have already developed our own classification systems of naming plants and animals and natural processes. We've incorporated those names into our languages and into our worldviews, into our our philosophy. You know, if you think about it, science is really just a philosophy. Newton and you know his contemporaries, they didn't refer to themselves as scientists. They referred to themselves as natural philosophers. Mm -hmm. Science, the word science didn't reach the English um, language until maybe 150 years ago. And it's a relatively new imposition into our language, if you want to call that, use it as, a, you know, use the word imposition to explain how, you know, we really are still figuring out natural systems. And so that's my long answer to, you know, the scientific tradition and how, from the perspective of Native peoples, you know, we, we often criticize it and, and question it. And unfortunately, this, you know, science has become institutionalized among nation states and, and adopted and incorporated into 
large-scale corporations, which are a big part of the nation states to the point where people just assume that they always know what they're talking about and assume that their talk is fact. Um, whereas it's really in a lot of cases still just a practice, you know, we're still understanding, which is an ongoing, under, an, an ongoing linear sort of, of practice, meaning it hasn't stopped. We're still figuring things out. And this unfortunately has impacted, in a case here in California, environmental practices where starting in the early 1900s across the West, it was, this decision was made by the U.S. government to fight all fires, you know, suppress them as much as possible so that the timber industry can have more access to, to woods or building so that people can keep making their way across North America and establishing more of their larger cities and colonies, if you want to go back to that concept. And not recognizing that their their very their own practices were over time creating fuel loads that were just waiting for proper conditions that we're seeing here in the West now. And for the last couple of decades, these incredibly huge catastrophic fires. There was always fires here in the West, but they were always small scale and sometimes intentionally set by native peoples in order to create certain habitats for mammals, to create habitats so that there was, in the case of California, less competition for nutrients and moisture for acorns, for oak, oak trees, which would, of course, you know, create more acorns for native peoples by you know, decreasing competition. And at the same time, the small-scale fires actually encourages certain species of useful plants to create understory underneath things like oak trees and among the redwoods and sequoias here in the West. And so it was native peoples had become keystone species in parts in most of the, of the Americas. In other words, we were just as important to the landscape as like say sawattles in the Sonoran Desert, as redwoods here in, in, uh, in California and so on. Um, this is something that is an example of a native form of science that Western science denies. A colleague of, of mine and myself at an Ecological Society of America conference a few years ago in Sacramento, so, you know, we... Um, we brought forth this concept of native peoples and keystone species, and it was you should have it would have been amazing to you to see the reaction that these yeah. Western scientists, yeah. you know, aimed at as it was this, this total denial of this possibility that native peoples can actually have a positive impact mm -hmm. on a landscape. Can I offer some more? <laughs> yeah, no, that was that was wonderful. Thank you. Um, I think, yeah, you speak to a really interesting point about this still very dominant idea that in order to conserve and protect natural the natural world um that we should just leave it alone and um stay away when in reality that that's that's not always the best thing for it and i think that's something that um like i, I i'm still learning so much more about but yes thank you for for touching that well, if we bring this around to agriculture Mm. And food gathering, for example, you reminded me, you said, you know, from the Western perspective, they just want to leave things alone. That's a result of this Western concept that when Europeans arrived here, that this was the quote unquote pristine landscape mm -hmm. in the Americas that it was untouched, so to speak, mm -hmm. that it needed to be developed. But the development was based on a model from old Europe which would not have applied here to North America because native people's concept of, of using the land, so to speak, was one like I just described. It was working with the natural processes of the land, of the different ecosystems, as opposed to um, changing 
than altering the natural processes. And so with regards to agriculture, for example, the Western approach is to, like say in the middle part of the United States, to just plow everything over, you know, eliminate all kinds of, of, of native grasses in the case of Iowa and Kansas and so on. And, you know, plow, till, raise the soil, and then to plant in you know, miles and miles of street rows of corn and sorghum and soybeans and so on, which of course has had an incredibly ne negative impact on the landscape here in North America. Before Europeans, and we still see among some indigenous communities today who have never really, uh, never adapt or adopted the European approach to agriculture among like say the Hopi and other Pueblo communities, um, the approach has been, like I said earlier, taking advantage of the natural processes that were already there. Non-till farming, where instead of plowing over and exposing the soils to oxidation and the release of naturally occurring nutrients and, and moisture, um, planting with, like in the case of the Hopi, with digging sticks. You put a digging, or create a hole several inches deep in the ground with your digging stick. You move it around after plugging it into the soil. You remove it and there's a hole. You plant your beans. You plant your, you know, your corn seeds. You take a step, same thing, and just keep doing that. So that way the soil is not exposed to oxidation. The nutrients are not releasing to, and the, and the moisture is not releasing to the atmosphere. Everything that needs to be there for the seeds stays there. Mm -hmm. um, another example, in southern Arizona, among the Tohono O'odham, um, there's this example of agriculture that they refer to as Akchen, which literally kind of translates into mouth of the wash, you know, like a royal. And what happens there is that they they take sticks from bushes in the desert region there, like say Ocotillo, and they create these sort of fences along a part of the wash. And then it's at a, it's nearby the mouth or the, the base of foothills. And so what's going on is that whenever you get these summer monsoon rains, moisture moves down the wash, it brings, just like I said, the moisture of the water, it also brings nutrients. By putting the fence there, it creates a sort of backwash and the nutrients and the moisture stops there. That's where they plant their corn and their melons and their, mm -hmm. their washes and so on. So taking advantage again of the naturally occurring you know, systems in the mm -hmm. desert. A little further north, up in the among the Zuni and other Pueblo folks, where it's very dry, they get maybe seven inches of rain a year. Um, you don't see large fields of straight lines of corn and beans and so on. What you might see are these small little one meter sized grids of what look like waffles, you know, across the land. And what these are are these little raised beds so another nut I guess the, the walls of the beds are raised about you know six to eight inches high and what's going on is that the little raised walls prevent um, the winds from drying out the soil and the whatever moisture is within that one meter size grid you know stays there and that's where they plant their crops again, taking advantage of natural systems there in an arid environment. And so these are all examples of, of an indigenous approach to growing food that is sustainable, mm -hmm. that can continue, and that maybe today we can learn from as climate changes are altering our, you know, the rains that come throughout the year. They're all they're making California drier, for example, we're in this long drought. Um, you know, who knows how many other things we can learn from this indigenous approach to, to growing our food. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, 
that so perfectly transitions us into the next question that I have about um, how has the colonial legacy is it currently impacting indigenous agricultural communities today? And then as a second part to that, like what possibilities does indigenous agriculture create for environmental justice and decolonization in its own right? Well, of course, this legacy of settler colonialism has created this institutionalized denial of access mm -hmm. to gathering sites, to what um, old friend of mine in Arizona would refer to as um, you know, the, the native gardens, the natural gardens. You know, because this whole landscape in all of the Americas was treated like a big, huge garden, like I explained earlier. And some places were, um, they offered better access to you know, medicinal and edible plants than other places. And those would be those naturally occurring, you know, quote unquote gardens. And, but unfortunately, because of um, the imposition of private ownership of land, Native peoples, are denied access to these places. In some cases, they can gain access, but it's a lot of, a lot of difficult work sometimes. Of course, Native peoples, because of the reservation system here in the United States, have been put on the least arable lands in, in North America. And so even those who want to grow food have a difficulty doing that. Um, of course, there's no more buffalo hunting like you know Hollywood tries to perpetuate because most of the buffalo are gone, and it's impossible to track the buffalo across landscapes full of fences, you know, across North America. Yeah. There's also these archaic laws imposed on indigenous communities. For example, there was the, the White Plume family in South Dakota. There are Lakota-speaking people who was looking at the Treaty of 1868 that established the Lakota's right to practice any kind of agriculture that they would want. And so the white plumes were reading this and thinking, well, let's grow stuff and see if we can create some kind of economic activity and, and possibilities here for our people. And they had, really, they had seen that it was really easy to grow industrialized hemp. And so they started growing industrialized hemp. And hemp grows on just about any depleted land that you can think of. And so it worked perfectly for them. And they, were, they actually grew and, you know, successfully a couple of acres of this hemp. And just before they were getting ready to harvest their hemp, they already had buyers in Canada and so on. The, the, the U.S. government, the, the DEA, um, the ones that are like anti-drug um, and so on, um, based on these archaic laws of what constitutes legal and illegal hemp, raided their, their fields and took all away their hemp. And to this day, they're still fighting, you know, their, the legality of their ability to grow whatever they want on their, on their reservation land. So that's just another example of this archaic institutionalized laws against Native peoples and their attempts to, to, to grow food, to practice their form of agriculture. We have also these grange, you know, we have these... Um, institutions here among farmers in the United States called the Grange. And there's these old Grange regulations that forces farmers, even indigenous farmers that maybe can you know, have access to growing their food legally, that there's these regulations that forces them to rely on seeds like Monsanto and Archer Daniels Midland and so on in Dow. Um, forces them to rely on in these these same industrialized and corporate fertilizers and herbicides and genetically modified seeds. Um, 
these are, are supported by the US government. So is this another example of these attitudes that negatively impact indigenous approach attempts to practice their form of agriculture? Um, and that just, um, that's all on top of just the, the reality that the US government back in the 1950s even attempted to terminate native, native tribes. In other words, just not treat them as separate sort of wards of the state, just terminate these individuals as members of a tribe where they would just become another American citizen, quote unquote, but the whole attempt, the whole point of this attempt at termination, it wasn't always attempts, they actually did it in a lot of cases in the 1950s. It was also a, a huge land grab because as soon as the tribes were terminated, it opened their, their lands to nearby land speculators and non-native uh, um, corporations to come in and gain ownership of what were once native lands. And so again, these were all just impacts and results of settler colonialism here in the United States. Yeah, yeah, thank you for sharing that. And um, do you feel that any, any sort of land reform strategies that could get closer to an indigenous practice of, of agriculture and food systems, do they offer any possibilities for, or in what ways do they offer possibilities for like a different path or an alternative future forward? Um, well, these are things that are gonna have to be accomplished on a, a, a couple of different levels. First, governments are going to need to establish um, how would you say this? Um, some kind of local government-supported, I guess you would say, agricultural and food districts, if we can call it that, mm -hmm. where by establishing a local food district and one that is supported by local governments, maybe it could be city, um, even you know, county. I'm not sure what the the Scottish example of a county would be, but you know, these are like sub sort of governmental groups within the same yeah. state of California. Yeah, um, council area, I think. Yeah, maybe a council area. So that would be an example of a county here or over there in Scotland. And so establish these sort of uh, local uh, um, government supported agricultural and food districts that would be accountable to those people who live in that district. So what this, what would this would um, establish is a, an encouragement to buy foods grown locally. Mm. And by encouraging, because you, you don't want to force people to do this, because of course, whenever you try to force people to do anything, they're gonna you know, fight back, but encourage people to buy locally because what happens, then we encourage local agriculture, we encourage agriculture that's unique to that ecosystem. Because what works here in my case in California is not gonna work in Arizona, it's not gonna work in, in Vermont, you know, because the, the ecosystems are so different. Growing food is gonna be so different. And it encourages locally, accessed um, or at local access to arable land so that native peoples in our case here that we're talking about could maybe get access to growing their traditional foods. Um, and it also decreases the impact of transportation on of foods. And so most of the food, I'm not sure what it is in, in, in Great Britain, but here in the United States, most of our foods come from between 1,500 to 2,000 miles away. 
And that creates more need to transport those foods, more impact on the lands because those have big trucks moving across the land. Those same big trucks are throwing um, uh, global warming aerosols and other you know uh, pollutants into the atmosphere. And that's one example of what local governments can do by establishing and encouraging you know, locally described sustainable food growing. And then something else that we can maybe do is encourage local community supported agriculture, where here in the Bay Area, for example, um, if you were able to rise above, you know, like say right on the top of a, of a drone and go across the land here in the Bay Area, across Oakland and where I live in San Leandro and other places, you would see these once um, empty lots that people, local communities and organizations, nonprofits have taken over and created these big, huge gardens, and, you know, asking and inviting people from different ethnic groups to come and grow their ethnic foods because it's sometimes hard to get access to these foods in local grocery stores. And that's this community supported agriculture. One of my favorite examples is in Flagstaff, Arizona, where a lot of native peoples, because of the need to, to work, you know, to, to become a part of the, the US economy, they had to move into Flagstaff away from their indigenous communities to get work, to make money. But they still want to eat their traditional foods, but it's hard to go back to the community where people are still growing their foods. And so there's a couple of local nonprofits in Flagstaff, Arizona, um, did the same thing. They created these community-supported agricultural areas where they took over these um, empty lots, encouraging the Hopi and Navajo, Hualapai, Apache, to take over these, these, these lots and grow their traditional foods, much like their ancestors would have done you know, a thousand years ago. So, and so instead of having to maybe get someone from their family still on the reservation to bring them their foods that they enjoy eating, they can do it right there in their own neighborhood. Um, another good example would be where a native community like say in the, among the Tohono O'odham in Southern Arizona, after decades of dealing with the imposition of government commodity foods, they unfortunately have the highest rate of diabetes among any population in North America. And they decided not the, an organization called Tohono O'odham Community Action, TOCA for, for short as an acronym, they decided they were going to take these fallow fields out there in the desert and look back on how their ancestors used to grow their food. Remember that auction farming I mentioned where they grow their foods in the washes? They decided to do that on a large scale. And they did they started doing this you know about 15 20 years ago to the point today where they have acres and acres of these traditionally grown foods like 90 day corn peppery beans that actually do better with less moisture and certain you know kinds of squashes and melons and and, uh, and greens where they can they're now providing traditional foods to the local schools traditional foods to the elders living in, you know, in a assisted living communities and so on. And then offering these foods to anyone who wants to come and get them to buy them in some cases. You can even go online and buy some of their tepary beans and other things that they, that they grow there. And so, you know, um, these are just examples of, I guess you would say, um, decolonizing their approach to food, you know, rejecting the established approach to agriculture in this case, which is what, you know, decolonizing is. It's such a, a political act, you know, this rejection of the dominant society's imposition of, in our case, food, agriculture, economics, 
politics, you know, even food is a part of, of our spiritual spirituality. And, you know, the, the dominant society has been trying to, in, to delete that. Mm-hmm. And so by rejecting that, by decolonizing our food, where we are revitalizing our our spiritual practices and in some cases even our languages because in order to grow food the traditional way it requires relearning the traditional stories associated with our foods and in order to learn those stories you better speak the language <laughs> so some of the all some of these acts these examples i've been providing have been great examples of a lot of indigenous cultures just totally revising revitalizing their, their entire cultures it's great to see. That's amazing. Yeah, I love hearing about that. I think this connection with food and culture and, and environmental um, action is, is so critical. And we're, we're looking forward to, to the future and, and how do we create change? And I guess, I suppose my next question would be on a perhaps a more physical level. What do you see changes in the environment and the way it responds to indigenous agricultural practices um, if we're thinking about climate change and issues like decreased biodiversity and soil desertification? Do you see these sort of resilience to the land and to the environment come back when indigenous peoples are able to practice their traditional cultural agriculture? I can use my own people's practices as an example. So my people, you know, there's about 70,000 of us. You know, we are Rolamuri. Some people call us Tarahumara. We are, we are from the Sierra Madres, which is in the northwestern part of, of Mexico. Um, the Sierra Madre Mountains. It gets up to 10,000 feet in elevation sometimes, but most of us live about between six to seven thousand feet in elevation. But anyway, the Mexican government, much like these other nation states, have you know have always attempted to impose their approaches to land management. In this case, you know, large-scale um, timber production, you know, um, logging in the mountains. And that has depleted the, the soils and um, actually dropped the water table in some areas and across the Sierra Madres. And so a lot of our people decided, you know, enough's enough, we're gonna fight this. And so we started doing these simple little things that we stopped doing that our ancestors used to do, which was to find natural occurring areas where there's this just a little bit of a, of you would call like a ravine, but not a deep ravine, maybe sometimes just three or four feet, you know, among the, the trees there um, in some of the open places where there's, you know, a little bit of a rise, maybe about 60 feet across and on the edges it's risen about six feet or something like that. And then, you know, dropped to a sort of apex in the middle there. And right there at that bottom little area, we, we just take a bunch of rocks and, and limbs of trees, and make these little sort of what's called check dams. And they're not very high, maybe like a foot high, you know, and maybe you know, 15 or 20 feet across. And just doing that to different parts of the land. And what's happened is that whenever there is rain, like the Akchin farming I mentioned before, it keeps the moisture and the nutrients behind the check dam. And we've done this so much that um, over the last couple of decades, we've actually brought the water table back up, you know, in different areas of the Sierra Madres. And when that water table, the water tables have come back up near the surface, that's where we can plant our, our traditional crops. That's where we can take our goats and sheep and you know, give them access to, to grass that they can eat in other plants. And so just through a sip, from a simple little traditional practice, we've um, brought the land back to life. 
and altered it back so somewhere that it's useful to the land and also us. And so my point here is that simple little practices like that can be done on a larger scale across, you know, around the world. If only governments would recognize what this native ecological approach to land management offers and, and um, throw their arrogance out the window a little bit and adopt some of these practices and not just adopt them, but make them, you know, establish them as, as laws in some cases, which we need. We're not gonna, as, as human beings, we're not going to do anything about this out of control climate change until governments on a large scale decide that they're gonna do something as well. We can all start to, we can keep recycling and driving electric cars and using you know, um, light bulbs that you know, draw less energy, but that's not gonna do anything until governments on a large scale you know, decide they're gonna do something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I guess that's a good point to maybe stop here and ask, um, where do you see the role of, um, of non-Native peoples, either in settler colonial societies or internationally, like, like me here in, in Scotland? Where do we, how do we show solidarity? How do we play a role in helping to amplify these, these stories and these approaches to land and, and agriculture? Um, like, is there a space for that? Or like, where, where would the, the next steps be for someone looking to contribute to the, a move towards more indigenous um, rights and say within land and food systems? Well, you're doing it right now <laughs> with this, this podcast. You're, hopefully your listeners will, will learn from it and hopefully um, more people will, will listen to the younger generations, you know, as people like myself, um, who, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting older, of course, getting close to retiring. Um, we can act as the elders. We, we can, you know, provide our wisdom. But it's the young people like Greta Thunberg, for example, and other folks like yourself who are listening to that, listening to us, and realizing we need to force these changes. We need to um, get more word out like you are doing with the podcast. We need to encourage everyone to, to support indigenous communities who are trying to reestablish and revitalize our traditional land management practices. This can be done through, um, you know, like in the case I mentioned with Toka, buying those tepary beans. Um, uh, looking at uh, Honor the Earth the, with their website, you know, um, just, uh, done by uh, Winona LaDuke, an old friend of mine, you know, buying her wild rice and supporting their activism. Because when we buy the wild rice and we buy the tepary beans and other things that these Native communities are selling, we're actually supporting their efforts that we've been just talking about, you know, about the supporting land management practices and traditional agriculture. And not just here in the Americas, but you know, there's examples of this all around the world. Um, getting local politicians and enforcing, encouraging local politicians to work on a local level. Like I mentioned before, these local um, special you know, food security districts. We need to support localized food security practices because too many indigenous communities and not just indigenous communities, but um, non-native communities who live in food deserts, for example, because of their economic situation and other situations where they've been forced into these, um, I guess you would say, um, lower economic situations, um, living in these food deserts and not having access to easy access to foods 
not having access to healthy foods like greens and so on, um, not having access to their traditional foods. Most traditional foods, foods that were there among indigenous communities around the world are actually very healthy. You know, foods that were eaten before European imperialism and colonialism were very healthy foods and better for us. But unfortunately, you know, we have less access to these foods around the world. So we need to encourage this, you know, these more um, food secure districts on a local level, because when it happens on a local level, then it reaches out and becomes more nationalized. And when we get these, these kind of systems nationalized, then we're actually doing something to support food justice and, and decreasing the impacts of climate changes. Right here in the Bay Area, there is a, some native peoples like myself, we're all scholars, but we're having a meeting pretty soon. And we want, we've already drawn up a, a, a food bill that we want to present to local communities here in the Bay Area to establish these food security systems that I mentioned earlier that are all local and would encourage local agriculture and the and buying only local foods, like say food that was only grown from within 50 miles from where I live in my case, which is possible here in California. <laughs> I'm not sure about, about you know, parts of England or, or United Kingdom. Yeah, I mean, that sounds wonderful. I can't, I can't wait to see what happens with that. And um, I suppose just to, to come back to the, the story that you told at the start of the episode and indeed all of the stories that you have shared with us today. Um, I was wondering like, what do you hope that listeners of this episode will take away from what you have said um, from the conversation as a whole? Like, what do you really hope to emphasize to people um, listening to this? Well, yeah, you know, if you go back to how I began, I was talking about the Chochenyo Ohlone and their Ohlone Cafe, you know. Um, they were doing that on their own. They just, they just felt this, this powerful need to, to, you know, get back to their pre-Columbian way of eating. Mm -hmm. um, but if we can do that here, like say in California on a larger scale, it's not just good for California natives, it's good for everybody. If we get more native communities to start getting access to and gathering their traditional ingredients for their traditional dishes, what that means is that on a larger scale here in California, there'll be a return to a sustainable land management practice. And when that happens, then we return to an ecosystem that doesn't have these huge catastrophic fires, that actually has rains come when they're supposed to come, that actually decreases polluted or polluted water systems. The return of of the seven different species of salmon that used to come up the, all the, among the, up the rivers here and all up and down the state of, of California. There used to be salmon coming up the Los Angeles River of all places, but not now because you know the, the Los Angeles River didn't exist anymore. But if we return to what we used to have, that's, that's better for everybody. It reminds me of when I did an indigenous exchange program for a few weeks in New Zealand. There was about maybe 15 of us native peoples from the United States who visited with different Maori communities in New Zealand. And we kept hearing about this, you know, this educational program in New, in New Zealand where children could go to school starting you know, at, at the, the elementary level and go all the way to the university level and learn all these subjects like math and history and, and languages and other things, science even, but all in the Maori language. 
And we actually got to visit a couple of these schools and we even went to the, the university there in the North Island of New Zealand. And there where I was talking to an elder and I asked him, when was it when there were the resistance to your approach to reestablishing the, the language and through this educational program stopped? When was it when non-Maori people decided that this is a good thing? And he said, it was when we made it universal, when we opened our programs to everybody on, in New Zealand. And that's when the resistance stopped because everyone realized what's good for the Maori is good for everyone in New Zealand. And so that's my point. And when we, as you know, here in the United States, in my case, maybe you know, or in in, in, uh, in Scotland, when everyone realizes that what's good for the native practices is actually good for everybody, that's when the tidal wave will move in a positive direction, and we can establish some you know large scale change, and maybe actually do something, you know, in your lifetime as a younger person. Um, about uh, the negative impacts of, of climate changes. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a wonderful way to end this. And I want to just thank you so much for talking to me today. It was really wonderful. My pleasure. <laughs>